This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tati Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with two of our favorite guests, Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson. Today we tackle a number of questions that have been bubbling up from the early days of Christianity through to the Reformation and into the modern epoch. Topics include faith versus work as a path to salvation, what happens when mythos is projected onto logos, the distinction between belief and faith, how practice depends on context, the practice of asceticism, and the relationship between allegorical thinking and the opening of the heart. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, Ken began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Jim Wilson was a monk and abbot under the direction of his teacher Sun San, a Korean Chogye sect Zen master. He served as a Buddhist prison chaplain, studied Western philosophy, co-founded Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, conducts a website devoted to syllabic form haiku, and has penned and published many books of poetry. In recent years, his spiritual practice has centered on the Quaker Christian tradition. In addition to his many poetry volumes, he has published several books on spiritual matters, including On Trusting the Heart, a commentary on a famous poem by the Third Zen Patriarch, and an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace. Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, it's good to have you again. Uh, and... Uh, I want to invite us all to join in a conversation, something that I don't think I could ever have imagined um, asking about in previous times, but it has arisen to my attention that a, uh, the subject of the work of a, uh, a third and fourth century monk and ascetic from the uh, late Roman Empire has become current in contemporary political conversations. And that's the uh, monk Pelagius. I don't know if I'm saying uh, that name right. And his uh, dispute with St. Augustine. So Pelagius lived from uh, 354 to 418, contemporaneous with St. Augustine. And uh, 
one of the things that I've discovered in researching this uh, the topic matter of this show is that, and something I didn't really grasp fully, was that during the Reformation, the uh, dispute between Pelagius and St. Augustine was revived, if you will, after well over a thousand years. And, and it still resonates today in, in America. We don't want to get into the particular um, uh, ramifications for the political uh, debates happening in the world today, but um, I am bemused by the fact that um, in America, the, uh, the country that I think it's fair to say resonates most strongly with Henry Ford's uh, aphorism that history is bunk, nevertheless, has become a realm for the resurrection, as it were, of this fourth century dispute. So, or maybe it's third century. Anyway, um, that being said, um, I think I'm going to turn it over to Stuart for a moment and allow him to, he, I, I, I'm not asking him to do a, uh, an historical uh, reconnection, but to uh, address a couple of the topics that are interesting to him, and then we can move on from there to hear what you guys have to say, unless you want to jump in first. Well, I just have a, a question, which I'm going to ask on behalf of people listening, and that is to outline as succinctly as possible, the exact nature of the dispute. Okay, so so Pelagius was a uh, either British or Irish monk who moved to Rome. Eventually, he went to Jerusalem, but he was famous. He was famous as an ascetic, and and the um, views that he had were disputed, as I said, by Saint Augustine, and he did not agree with Augustine's view of original sin. And so he was an advocate of free will. And, and even Augustine was willing to, even, even though Augustine wanted, uh, moved to and succeeded in having him declared, Pelagius declared a heretic, uh, even Augustine admired the ascetic life that um, Pelagius held and that he advocated. But it's this issue of, of free will versus original sin. Are we tainted originally, as it were, by original okay. sin? This is, a, this is an issue that, that, with my Catholic background, resonates. I'm not sure how much it will resonate for, uh, um, for some listeners. Well, I, I, I've had this conversation a couple of times with Jim, so it'll be interesting. Uh, and I, I'll just add a, a couple of glosses on this. One is that my understanding of the uh, Pelagian point of view was that he rejected original sin in the sense that since God created everything, everything is in, uh, uh, imbued with God's grace, so all we can really do is just act act and do good works to embody God's grace. Whereas the counter position was that because humankind is uh, 
you know, has this original sin, we cannot by ourselves, by our own actions, uh, attain to salvation. We need the, we need the, uh, grace of God as to, as it were an intervention. Yeah. yeah as a, to, yeah, to complete that octave, if you will, to, uh, raise us up. And so that distinction, which, operationally and we'll get into this may may not be a big deal turns you know theologically becomes this very major uh, rift and to say that Pelagius advocated free will is a little overstating it because it wasn't a, a, a restatement of Aleister Crowley do what you will it was a because Pelagius was a ascetic he was a deep practitioner so it couldn't be that doing whatever you wanted was the uh, answer to uh, embodying the grace of God in the world. It was something else. Another way uh, before we, I guess the last thing I'll say is that we were on a conversation with some friends uh, yesterday. And one of them who is Argentinian was telling us about how he was raised in a, um, uh, Protestant school, and they were taught that, you know, the Catholics will tell you that good works will get you into heaven, but don't listen to them. Faith, faith alone will get you into heaven. And which is a reference here, obviously, to the Reformation. Right. And And so it seems as though that that's the dichotomy is like faith versus good works seems seems to be part of the distinction here. And so let me uh turn it over to either Jim or Ken here, because I think you can elaborate on these themes and um, set us straight in any under- misunderstanding we may have. Uh, I'm going to defer to Jim first. Well, I'm uh, initially, I'd just like to um, put, get some further background to, to that. The dispute between uh, that, that we're talking about goes back uh, between the difference between Paul and James in the letters of the, hmm. of the New Testament, because um, you know, Paul see, at times seems to be advocating for uh, faith, faith alone, you know, like uh, that. Um, and uh, Paul frames this with a rejection of um, Jewish works. So like, you know, you follow the mitzvot and the, the regulations of Jewish law and, and that's how you attain salvation. And Paul rejected that and said that it is, that it is only through faith um, in Jesus that, um, that you will attain salvation, that the he, he explicitly rejects the law, and what he's rejecting is that the law is works-based. You know, like works-based. That that is through your effort to follow the discipline of um, of the Jewish law. Um, and the reason I say at times is I think you always have to keep in mind that Paul Paul's letters are written to specific churches who are having specific problems. And uh, there's a tendency to generalize statements that he makes and to 
um, generate a theological um, superstructure based based on these statements, which, in my opinion, isn't always, uh, which is usually not justifiable. You know that he's he's dealing with concrete difficulties that are manifesting in a particular church. So, I mean, one of the concrete difficulties that he was manifesting is the conflict between um, early uh, uh, Christian Jews and early Christian non-Jews. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and so the issue of of in that context, it became a big issue for whether or not people had to follow the Jewish law. So, I I want to put that context in there. Not there's a tendency to blame Paul for. Mm-hmm. kinds of things but um so but moving on to uh, the letter of james who was the brother of jesus um uh, his approach is is completely works-based you know like uh it's a beautiful letter it was uh, uh i think it's the most frequently quoted part of the new testament outside of the gospels um in quaker um in the Quaker tradition, oh. you know, like it says, uh, there's a, I'm paraphrasing, uh, there's a passage, uh, this is true religion, to take care of orphans and widows, to uh, tend the sick, you know, like, and he has, he has this list, and James says, this is true religion, you know, like, so, and what he's, what he's listing is a, a series of activities that you engage in, you know, like, and so it's so works-based that Martin Martin Luther, when he was um, translating uh, the Bible into German, wanted to delete the letter of James. <laughs> he, he really, he really, really tried, you know, like, but, um, you know, his close friends with a theological bent said, eh, you know, Martin... <laughs> I don't, I don't think we can really, you know, I don't think we could really just toss out the letter of James. But the, the reason Martin Luther didn't like it is because it's clearly not a, um, a sola scriptura. Um, it, and, it, and please ex- explicate that to term for our listeners. Well, it's, it's not a um, uh scripture alone or faith alone or you know like uh that kind of thing and 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 james acknowledges the importance of faith you know like but um catholics really like the um the letter of james it's odd that both the quakers and the catholics would really like the letter of james but they do and from a catholic perspective when they're having debates with protestants who believe in faith alone um they uh, one of the go-to biblical references is the letter of James. It says no, it's not faith alone. There are works involved, you know. Like, and you can view the works as a sign of receiving grace, or you can view them as a mechanism for opening yourself to grace. You know, like those those are theological disputes. But the point is, either way, that works works have significance, and. So I, I wanted to give that um, that background to this emergence because Pelagius is a um, letter of James kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He's uh, you know like and 
his view is that um, uh, ascesis uh, or ascesis is um, what we would call asceticism. Asceticism. Asceticism is the work that a Christian should do. A Christian should engage in asceticism. Now, I don't know whether Pelagius, again, I don't know whether he meant that that was a sign of grace or whether that opened you up to grace, maybe both, you know, uh, maybe, maybe it was a process, you know, like, but renunciation and asceticism were uh, from Pelagius's point of view, the key. And I think in, one of the reasons that um, uh, this is re-emerging, <laughs> uh, you know, really strangely in, the, in a contemporary setting is that <clears throat> with Calvinism and certain kinds of Protestantism, being successful, material, materially successful in life became a sign of election. You know, like, and a sign that you were, uh, you know, that you were graced with God's goodwill. You know, like, and, and thus saved. And thus saved, right. And so for Pelagius, he had, you know, like, that meant nothing to him. The fact that you were successful in worldly terms was, you know, um, yeah, I mean, his recommendation to anyone who was rich I mean, I don't have a personal story about this, but it's consistent with the Desert Fathers, would be to give it all away. So like Anthony, St. Anthony, the patron saint of hermits and recluses, you know, had property. His parents died. He had property in Egypt. And uh, it was agricultural property. It wasn't like he was a great aristocrat or something like that. Um, and then he... Uh, he heard a sermon um, one Sunday where it says, give all you have to the poor, you know, uh, that passage. And he decided that that that, um, that, that was right, that they, the passage actually meant that. And he gave all of his property away. Um, actually, he sold it and he set up a fund for his sister, you know, like so his sister would be taken care of, you know, like. And um, and then he and then he went into de into the desert, you know, like um, and um, uh, practiced ascesis. So in Christianity, you have these two these two tendencies, you know, like about um, you know, like and uh, oh, another point in history where this uh, bubbled up was uh, with the Cathars in um, in France, um, Albigensians, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Albigensians, yes. Albigensians, because in order to be an Albigensian priest, you had to be an ascetic, because uh, being an ascetic was a sign of uh, purity, grace, dedication, you know, like, um, uh, and lay people were very, very impressed with um, uh, what, what uh, they were impressed with that capacity, with that ascetic capacity. And it attracted a large following on that basis, you know, like, um, and uh, Catholic uh, uh, prelates were not known for their ascetic uh, capacity. You know, like, <laughs> that, is, that is a lovely understatement. 
<laughs> so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic, you know, and each time it emerges, the um, uh, the non-ascetic faction seems seems to win out, you know, like in Christian history, you know, it cycles around and around and around. You know, that it's interesting that that's not true in India, you know, like um, in the history of Indian uh, religion, you know, like, but it is true in the in the history of um, Western monotheism, you know, like, which is a difference that could be explored. Um, so that's what I have to offer at this time. I no, I, I, complicated or no, no, that, that, that's very, very illuminating. So uh, Ken, do you have any, anything to you have a Buddha, a Buddhist perspective <laughs> for us, Ken? Uh, well, um, Thanks to all three of you for putting this on the table. Uh, very interesting. Um, and uh, I, I found the sketching uh, the territory and, and what was going on very helpful. So I feel I can join the conversation now. Uh, I made a few notes uh, on everything. Uh, I think. There are several themes which, uh, as I listened to what the three of you had to say, uh, one is uh, the uh, general problem in mystical practice of having an experience of the sacred, of the divine, of God, whatever you want to call it, that rings so true. It, there's no question that it is true for you. And then there's a very human tendency to want to share that, but that sharing is based on the idea that what is true for you is going to be true for others. And I think that's where the problem creeps in or marches in, whichever metaphor you want to use there. Uh, all, all of the above. Yeah, uh, because, and, and the same tendency is very, very present in Buddhism. I can give instances of it, but just to highlight a couple of the, a few of the uh, contrasts here, I mean, uh, you have faith versus good works. You have free will versus original sin. It wasn't articulated quite this way, but I'll put it, this way myself is practice versus belief uh, and uh, they're all for me through my own practice and study I've come to see these things uh, that when people become adamant about one of these things uh, that is a reflection of their personal experience and uh, and, and what has been so meaningful and, and has, you might say, has been their spiritual path or is very central to their spiritual path at the very least. And their inability some, uh, and to, to con convey and inspire others uh, to it. Uh, and uh, because there, there's such a, for many people, there's such an impetus as to want to share it and want, want others to experience something similar to what you yourself have experienced. You have find this in all, all traditions. 
And uh, I mean, some of the disputes, and Jim can certainly add probably a few more than this, but I'm speaking simply from the Tibetan tradition. Uh, well, not just from the Tibetan tradition. I, the first one is self-power versus other power, which is uh, echoing uh, in a kind of way, but not quite the same faith in good, weeks, uh, good works. Uh, another is, uh, in the Tibetan tradition particularly, is self-emptiness and other emptiness, which gets a bit arcane, but uh, are two very, very different views of uh, philosophies as the basis of practice, and echo in some way the uh, difference between uh, the uh, Yogacara and the uh, Madhyamaka, or the, uh, what are the names oh, in Sanskrit? I can't remember now. Uh, in Tibetan is the path of profound view versus the path of broad action. And then the uh, another one is, uh, which was important, I think, in the Chinese tradition is uh, sudden awakening versus gradual awakening. Uh, and <clears throat> I, I discussed these kinds of things with my teacher and <laughs> it didn't go very well. <laughs> I brought it up once and he just looked at me and said, you're very clever, aren't you? <laughs> and uh and and then uh proceeded to put uh, put a coin on the table st standing on its edge and say is this heads or tails <laughs> <laughs> and I went, okay uh and then then he just said when you understand you'll see that there's no difference and I've always, I, I, I've kept that very close to me uh, all through the years. And, and that's what I've evolved to, is that uh, you have these uh, differences, but they, and, and they're deep differences, but they're differences which come from a difference in experience. And there's another factor which leads to this kind of, this polarization or bifurcation, whatever you want to call it, uh, and that, that I, I, I got very clearly from reading uh, Rebel in the Ranks, which is history of Martin Luther and the Reformation and the aftermath of the Reformation. And uh, Jim knows this territory much better than I do, so he can comment on this. But my impression reading this is that Martin Luther did not start off to split from the Catholic Church. It's because he could not convince the Pope to make some adjustment in the terrible corruption of the time and the sale of indulgence and things like that, that this dispute went between them and Martin Luther became more and more adamant and more and more radical until he elevated uh, faith, uh, yeah, the, the authority of scripture over the authority of the Pope uh, and that's constituted the, uh, the break. And in doing so, he unleashed Protestantism and was stunned when immediately hundreds of Protestant sects emerged, all of whom were completely adamant about their own interpretation of the scripture. Because it never occurred to Martin Luther that people would interpret the scripture differently from him. <laughs> and he was completely aghast, as some of his other people were, completely aghast at, at, at what they unleashed, and, and that there was no way of putting it back in the bag. And I think it's a real problem, because historically, 
Buddhism, uh, not Buddhism, but religion has been about practice. And we can look at another area that Jim's explored is is Shinto, which is all about practice uh, uh, and good works if you want. Um, And it is only Protestantism that has elevated uh, belief uh, above practice. And that has created a uh, huge problems in the world. So I want I want to ask a couple questions there because one one is that certainly the problem you articulated about somebody having a transcendental experience or an experience of divine divinity or beingness at a different scale than the human faces a problem when they want to translate that into human phenomenal terms and. In one sense, I can understand a focus on scripture as a way to keep people kind of uh, corralled as they open themselves up to that kind of experience. So so instead of having people break into multiple religions at every uh, uh, numinous moment, they <clears throat> focus on trying to put their... Uh, their experience in the framework of the scripture and a scripture provides a certain kind of uh, container for the community as a whole to hold the, an experience of the divine. And so in a, in a way that makes a great deal of practical sense to me. But there, but there just let me jump in for a moment. There are other uh, ways of, of doing that. And the authority of a Pope was another way to keep, as you were saying, people uh, corralled, but uh, because there's so many ways you can go wrong in this path. Right. And uh, and having some uh, authority and tradition to rely on uh, prevents you from chasing down. Right. So, so let me, me, uh, okay, go ahead. Well, I I have a question related to this, but go ahead. Well, maybe you should go with your question first, because I have a kind of a fundamental clarification I think we need to make right now. Okay. Well, the question is, do we think that Luther actually had a numinous experience or an, or an experience of the divine or transformation that that informed his decision to uh, take on the... Uh, I, I'd like the, to come the, back to the, that question after hearing Stuart's... Uh, okay, okay. So, so the, the distinction I want to be clear on because we're using words a little bit interchangeably here is the distinction between faith and belief because if you say that uh, faith alone uh, even faith in scripture is a necessary component to salvation that to me rings differently than belief in scripture and uh, as a, a friend recently put the definition of belief you know belief is a emotional relationship with a lie <laughs> whereas faith is something that is not rooted in a particular conceptual uh, representation but more represents a direction or an orientation that one has in life. So if I have faith, if I have faith in scripture, it's not that I necessarily even have to take scripture literally. I just know that that container provides me a reliable resting place or entry point into 
my expression of or my uh, engagement with divinity. So I want to. So I, yeah. So please, I want to so get your guys' I, takes on this. I, I've made the same kind of distinction between faith and belief, but I'm also faced with the fact that in most people's parlance, they're used interchangeably. Interchangeably, I mean, I, I, I would uh, often describe faith as the willingness to open to whatever arises in experience. As, and belief as the tendency to interpret what arises in experience to conform to what you already hold inside. Jim, your thoughts? Uh, I wanted to point out that uh, there's actually a passage in Paul where he discusses the meaning of faith. You know, and he mm-hmm. says, uh, faith is the trust, um, it is, is trusting in things unseen. You know, like, mm-hmm. so, that, so that you you trust that there is this uh, unseen or unperceived dimension to existence. Mm-hmm. And then in another passage, he says that, that which is unseen, so things which are seen are um, mortal and of the flesh. Things that are unseen lead to everlasting life. So that's the connection, you know, that's the connection that he's making, you know, like, uh, um, so you have to have, from Paul's point of view, you have to have a, a trust in this unseen dimension because it is that unseen dimension which leads to salvation. So I, I'm just putting up, well, putting up that framework. Well, I think, I think that's, uh, ap- you know, absolutely uh, on point to the distinction I was describing. I used slightly different language, but another way that I would put that, you know, which is influenced by my fourth way background is that uh, faith has a, is a largely a, a, in the dimension of feeling. And so a word like trust works for me, whereas uh, belief is largely in the realm of mind because I'm belief is about creating boundaries. I believe this, I don't believe this, you know, it's a, it's a representational sort of thing. Whereas if I'm trusting in the unseen, representation doesn't enter into it because it's unseen. That's interesting. I, I wonder, uh, Stuart, uh, along with Ken, like if you're having a conversation with an ordinary person and they use the word belief, do you do you think that they're using it in the way that you're describing? I think it um, depends on uh, the how it how it shakes out because i think i think you can use those words interchangeably but the interchangeableness of them is where we run into trouble because people can be very literal about their interpretation of scripture and consequently that has consequences like uh, a lot of the anti-scientific valence that we have in the political sphere right now i think derives from this kind of literalism in scripture uh partly because it, it you can believe things that from a scientific point of view are not you know able to be validated or are just simply wrong we could, we could take the quotation from Paul what was it uh, trust in things unseen right well that means that you shouldn't trust science well <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, because science is, 
yeah, because, well. <laughs> I don't know if that's a necessary logical. Well, no, you're saying you could take it that way. I, I see. Yeah, you could take it that way. You could take it that way. Or you could certainly privilege the unseen right. uh, and, over the scientific. And, and, and just, this was the problem that Luther inadvertently unleashed on the world. I'm not seeing the connection between because if it's individual interpretation of scripture, there's a piece of scripture and I take the unseen to mean one thing, you take it to mean another and off we go. <laughs> well, I think, I think partly though, this unseen element is lost. Um, uh, I don't think most people who engage in belief in scripture configure it as I I'm trusting in the unseen. I think they configure it as uh, I'm, I'm trusting, trusting in, in the, the word in the word of God, right. which is right there on the page. And if Jonah was uh, swallowed by a whale by by gum, that's that's a real story about the way the world works. Granted, what I'm all I'm trying to do is point out: once you open the door to individual interpretation. You are everybody. I mean, you might say this is the basis of uh, postmodernism. Everything, everybody's interpretation, everybody's interpretation is equal status. Well, and and this gets gets back to the question I asked a little while ago that that was deferred, because what where do we think? Given the evidence that we have, obviously we can never know the mind and heart of Martin Luther, but given the evidence that we have. What do we think? Um, how transcendent was his understanding when he started off this way? You, you, you yourself just pointed out earlier in the conversation, Ken, the, that um, which which comes out of the book you, you referenced, that Luther was dumbfounded that anyone could have an interpretation different than his of the words in Scripture. It just didn't compute for him. I haven't read a lot in, in, uh, about this. So I'm, 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 my primary source is this particular book. But in reading, and I thought the author, Brad Gregory, Brad Gregory did a very good job. <clears throat> uh, if I read between the lines, I think... Luther had a very sincere faith and probably some sense, uh, a direct sense of a relationship with God. I don't think he would have, I don't think he would have been pushed into being radicalized without something like that. Jim, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, um, I have trouble with Luther uh, because um, because of his personal history, and, and like Rob, I, I just can't I can't get into his mental state. But you know, as time went on, he became more and more belligerent. You know, like um, and well, and it wasn't just that wasn't just an emotional tone. It was actually advocating that people um, suffer. Because they disagreed with them, right? And there's a, you know, um, and that's a, a pattern 
in um, so like Augustine became more and more belligerent as he hmm. as he got older, you know, like and you know was involved in suppressing heresies like Pelagius, you know, like um, mm-hmm. and uh, and that it's hard for me my understanding of what it means to open to the transcendent. Um, I have I have trouble integrating that kind of behavior into my my own experience of the transcendent and my own view of how that should affect a person as they come through life. I think something we need to keep in mind here is that, and I, this may well go back to Paul and James, but uh, you you had large in, large institutions and very powerful economic and social forces in play, uh, which uh, and we know that those kinds of forces and mysticism don't mix very well. No, never have. <laughs> uh, and so you find people like Martin Luther, who started off, I'll just say, can we clean this up a little bit and just make things better? But because of his personal investment in it, and uh, he becomes more and more radicalized because of the intransigence of the opposition, and uh, doesn't possibly have the level of mystical understanding that would lead him to say, just drop it. Well, see, to me, that's where uh, asceticism comes in. Exactly, yes. And Pelagius's view. The, the, um, I mean, in a way, you can, you can view asceticism as um, the application of that letting go, that just dropping it, you know, like... Um, and it's, pri- it's placing practice over belief. Right. So, so this um, leads me to a question uh, about asceticism and about, in general, the the way that Ken you framed the the the, um, the issue of someone has a an experience of the divine or 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 a mystical a door opens to the mystical realm for a person and and there's a natural impulse to we want to share that with others so so the question of how to do that of course is is interesting and there's a tendency i suspect for most people to say well just do this this and this right and um so it might be ascetic practice. It might be good works. It might be a combination. It might be whatever, whatever the prescription happens to be. But the question is, in, in all cases, do the prescriptions actually lead people to, um, to, that, to, a, to a similar... A door opening for them. I mean, this is such a rich question, Rob. Uh, let me give you two instances. Uh, in the case of Buddha Shakyamuni, 
learned meditation after he left his wife and children and <coughs> child and became a sadhu, a mendicant. Uh, he studied meditation with two great masters, uh, mastered supposedly the uh, high levels of meditation and didn't feel that this constituted the kind of understanding that he wanted. And so elected a path of extreme asceticism. In, in scriptures, it says uh, one grain of sesame seed, one drop of water, and one jujube seed a day. After years, he was literally skin and bones. And he said, this isn't working, which actually, given the emotional investment, was a huge step. Then, uh, so that path of asceticism, which he had, and some other people had followed, clearly didn't lead him to where he wanted to go. On the other hand, a person that I know, uh, or knew, made a film about the Kumbh Mela, which is this big celebration in India every 11 years. It's the only time you can be initiated into the Shaivite tradition. And so it's gathering typically of 10 or 11 million people at a certain place in India, the junction of two rivers. Uh, and you have all of these Shaivites preaching and doing, you know, just, it's, it's a huge religious festival. And she made this uh, film about it. And one of the scenes from this film is this person who has held his arm aloft for 25 years. <laughs> this is practice. And you think, this is absolutely nuts. Until the camera pans onto his eyes. And the person is absolutely right. You see it and feel it on the film. So, you know, this, your, your question is unanswerable because it depends on the individuals. One, and, and people have prescribed a path of asceticism for their followers, and for some it's worked and for some it hasn't. And for the others that it hasn't, they've started a whole another tradition, just as Buddha did. <laughs> and this is, reflects the complexity of both spiritual awakening or spiritual experience and the complexity of the path to it, and which is only appropriate because we're very complex as human beings. And the tendency here that we run into, and I think is largely responsible for the kind of conversation we're having here, is the human tendency to want to reduce it and generalize, you know, taking one experience, one approach, and making it work for everybody. And this is just not how it is. Right. And we even have. We have to combat these tendencies within Buddhism and within the various traditions of Buddhism at that, just as, but they don't usually lead to the kind of uh, harshness, let's say, that we find in some of the other traditions. When you spoke of the sadhu who had his <clears throat> hand raised for 25 years, it reminds me of, uh, there was a period in early Christianity, I think it's the, fourth and fifth centuries, something like that, where they had um, extreme displays of ascetic um, practice. I mean, I, I think of the stylites are 
The, and it didn't become a, comp comp a competition, of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the Stylites would live uh, their entire life on this platform, which was on top of a pillar. Uh, and the platform was not in the shade. You know, like it was, it was in the open. And, and, and it was in Egypt or nearby, and so yeah. it's really hot. In the, the summer, the stylites were popular in Syria. I mean, popular, you know, like there were maybe a dozen of them. <laughs> but, uh, and it, it's it's intriguing, you know, like um, so I know that there are uh, Jain scriptures who uh, that um, uh, express uh, a kind of mournful attitude about Shakyamuni uh, giving up his ascetic practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was such a shame. He was so close. To, you know, like, and they, they, they really, you know, like, and the thing about the Jain tradition is that it is highly codified. It is highly codified. You know, mm -hmm. the, the steps that you take, you know, the ascetic practices that you do, are uh, stepwise, and you do this first, and then you do this second, and then you do this, and then you do this, and you do this, and that's um, quite highly hierarchical. And it's quite quite hierarchical, yeah. So, so you know the the Jain tradition, you know, like I mean, their view because of their commitment to ahimsa is that if that if you don't want to do that, then go your own way. You know, like because they have that. Um, the centrality of ahimsa leads them to that conclusion. You know, like nonviolence, right? What? Nonviolence. Nonviolence, yeah. right? You know, like, but most spiritual traditions don't have that at the center of their, you know. So uh, that um, uh, with most spiritual traditions, there is a way of justifying that. Well, you know, these are the steps, and if you're not taking the steps, then you're wrong. And then all sorts of things you know, like follow from yeah. that. Like, so one, uh, this kind of calls to mind a distinction of the what and the how, which is echoes the distinction between the mind and the heart in that the, when your relationship to practice is, if I just do these things, I'm going to get something that uh, it can be an empty process, but how is more gets into this question of trust, faith, the feeling context in which the practice is engaged. And so how one engages in practice, regardless of what that practice is, I think is more revealing about the consequences of the practice than the what of the practice. And I would certainly grant that there's a feedback between what and how uh, where it may, you know, if one is practicing, uh, what is it, Boga, the, uh, you know, just the indulgence in the world, that may have consequences that uh, uh, make clarity and the uh, how problematic. But just as we've been talking about, so does extreme asceticism. So I'm interested how you how that distinction of the what and the how lands for you both in this uh, context.
I'll have to think about it. Um, okay. Um, this, this is a very important question, I think, uh, Stuart. Uh, you can take, uh, I'm just going to take some practices from uh, my own tradition. Uh, you could take uh, breath meditation, you could take mantra practice, uh, you could take prayer. And uh, any number of other ones. Uh, and the how is, is, is very important because there has to be, I can put this in one of two ways, either of two ways. Uh, there's either giving yourself to the practice or there's allowing the practice to work on you. Uh, I think you can articulate it in either way. Um, in either case, there's a, there's a letting uh, go, which allows you to enter into a different relationship from I am doing this practice. And I think without that, uh, things won't go very good. Is that clear enough? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's a, I mean, certainly in many traditions, practitioners run across a, you know, a drying out of the practice at times. And it, it feels to me like <clears throat> that happens when the form of the practice sort of takes, it dominates over the, uh, uh, the, the feeling of the practice. And it's not that one necessarily has control over that process. So I'm not saying that that means you're doing something wrong. It just is more to distinguish that there's a certain something present when the feeling is activated and, 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 and a, what I would call unit of feeling is present that pulls things together. That is different than when I'm treating my practice, like I'm solving an engineering problem. I'd like to introduce another dimension to that. When you say practice dries out, uh, I've, when students have come to me with that, I've always said, congratulations. Your capacity is now exceeded your level of commitment and you have to raise your level of commitment. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it, what was coming up uh, for me uh, in this this just just this immediate thread of the discussion is is the um the christian articulation of the dark night of the soul i think these days that tends to get misunderstood as i'm having a bad time in my life <laughs> um whereas my at least uh, as as i uh, grasp how it was originally used 500 years ago it was Within the context of of an ongoing practice, in just that in just this way, and I and I think you're you're I mean I like your your formulation um, that more commitment or or a renewed commitment is 
or a refined commitment. Or a refined right? commitment, sure. Um, is uh, in fact, I like that the well, best of all. I think I like it part, partly because uh, this there's a constellation of words here, like commitment and faith, have uh, a very I think organic relationship that. Um, if you say you have to refine your faith or deepen your faith, or you say you need more commitment or you need to up the level of commitment, I think we're saying the same thing. And what we're saying isn't that you believe in something or you do something, but it's more the activation of a inspiration um, or a informed will to Continue. It's interesting that you link those two. <laughs> yeah, well, it's quite right. You have to go deeper inside. Yeah, but but uh, and I agree. And informed will and, and inspiration are not uh, two things that I would immediately intuitively link. Right. And so, so I, I'm talk be, I was that. being a little provocative, but I, I, I uh, again, I will. As is your way. As is my way. Um, Yeah, I, I, oh. when I say informed will, uh, you know, that means like if, if I have the impetus to act from within myself as opposed to in reaction to something outside of myself, um, that the color of that is similar to inspiration because when I'm inspired, then action flows naturally. I, I that, think that oh. I, I'm not sure you dug yourself entirely out of your hole there, <laughs> That's but, okay. but I try. I, I, I get it. <laughs> but Jim, please save me. <laughs> I, I have. I'm. A, what? What? What was the question? No, go ahead. Oh, what and how? What oh, and, uh, well, yeah, yeah. The distinction between the what and the how. All right. Um, the. Um, I tend to use, rely on metaphors. So like if I want to become a musician, then uh, let's say I want to learn to play the piano, then I need to go to a piano teacher who will, who knows how to play piano and can teach me. And so like the drying out of practice, it's like, so this teacher can teach me to play certain kinds of music, but suppose there's a, a composer that this teacher is not up to, you know, like, or is unfamiliar with, you know, like, then I need to, then I need to find another, you know, another way, another path, you know, to, um, to continue, you know, like, um, so, and sports metaphors are, are very relevant to this also because you know like to play say baseball there's actually quite a lot of different techniques that you need to learn you know like you need to learn how to throw you need to learn how to catch you need to learn how to bat you need to learn how to run the bases you know like all, all of those are you know skills you know like um uh, to acquire and baseball players are noted for being particularly skillful, you know, with one practice and maybe not as skillful, you know, like with, with another, you know, capacity. And I see, um, I see asceticism as working on that metaphor, as built on that metaphor. 
you know, like, and the reason I say that is because um, ascetic theologians use those metaphors. They, re they refer to ascetics as spiritual athletes. You know, like, um, and uh, sometimes they'll use uh, military metaphors, you know, like, so, you know, fighting against the spiritual the warrior, spiritual warrior, spiritual warrior, you know, like, and you learn, you learn the techniques of ascesis in the same way that <clears throat> a sportsman, you know, like say a wrestler will learn to throw, grapple, hold, pin, you know, like all, all those kinds of things, you know, like, and an ascetic learns to, you know, to fast and to um, uh, withdraw into silence and, you know, has, and, and they'll directly make those kinds of comparisons, you know, like, so, so the, the what is how to become, a, is I want to be a good musician. And the how is how to hold, you know, for the piano, how to hold my hands, how to play a scale, how to, you know, um, and, and then it results in that. So I think that's the model of, for, uh, for asceticism, I think that's the model, the what and the how, you know, like, so you learn these techniques. Now, the interesting thing is that different music teachers will introduce different procedures at different, the same procedures at different times. Yeah. Or they will, based on their own experience, will say, will develop a, like a, a different approach to how to play a certain passage. So for example, in the piano, you know, like the, the fingering of a difficult passage might be different for different teachers. They'll right. actually they'll actually write it on the music, you know, which finger to use, you know, and it won't be the same, you know, like from um, from teacher to teacher, you know, like so. And that's also true in sports. You know, certain coaches are noted as being, you know, like really, you know, they're really good at teaching teaching their team how to run, you know, like, or how to play defense or, or something like that. And then, you know, commentators will say, but they don't seem to have gotten their team, you know, very good at X. Right. Really. So, so it's not, I, I want to put in that complication. Because yeah, uh, I, I agree. I, the only, I agree with everything you said, except that I would use uh, what and how differently. For, for, I, the way I was using it, the what is, what do I do? So the, like the finger exercises is the what, and the how is more of the context that I'm bringing to, you know, the feeling context I'm bringing to the engagement. So I'm inspired. So I, I heard something quite different. Yeah. So, so I'll, 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 since you used a musical analogy, I, what came up for me with, with relationship to my work with my shakuhachi or Japanese bamboo flute teacher is in a lesson we'll get very particular about like for instance the transition between two notes and the uh, relative uh, uh, movement of the tongue the bending of the flute in order to produce a kind of an elegant sound and it's it's very mechanical so it's a, it's like a very particular what i'm doing for that all to work well though there's a uh, another element which is uh essentially bringing intentional feeling in 
like conveying a feeling and he'll use metaphor for that. Like uh, recently in some lessons, uh, part of the sound was to sound like Donald Trump and part of the sound was to sound like Marilyn Monroe. So the beginning <laughs> of the sound was Donald Trump and the end of the sound was Marilyn Monroe. And I swear to God, when I did that, <laughs> it's like the whole, all of the cylinders kicked in and there was a, uh, uh, a progression of a very powerful sound that suddenly uh, withdraws into this very delicate uh uh, sweet beauty. And so that how was uh, more nebulous, whereas the, and as long as I focused on the techniques, you know, anytime he tells me something, I have about, there's like 10 or 20 techniques. And so I'll, I'll focus on one and he says, well, you're not doing that. Then I'll do that. And then I'll forget something else. And, and then when I let go finally, and just hold the whole space for everything, then suddenly it sounds good. Well, it's interesting uh, that in the, if you read the Desert Fathers <clears throat> and uh, uh, the period of, uh, of ascetic literature in Christianity is mostly uh, 5th century, 6th century. It's, it's not the earliest level of Christianity. And uh, the, the background of that is after Christianity became a... Um, um, an acceptable religion and then became a state religion, the church was flooded with people who realized that it was advantageous for them to be Christian, you know, like that they would. Um, and, uh, and the Desert Fathers write about this. They fled to the desert because of this. Like because the Desert Fathers fled to the desert because they wanted yeah. to get away from the materialistic approach to Christianity. Right, exactly. You know, like and they, they say this explicitly. You know, like that they could no longer um, uh, find in the organized church a vehicle for um, for the kind of practice that they that they wanted to do. Um, and then I, oh, so. One of the most frequent uh, setups in the Desert Fathers is a new, um, someone young who is, a pra who is attracted to asceticism goes into the desert uh, and says to an elder, give me a word. You know, like that is give me a teaching. And then they have a conversation and the, the elder says, well, try this. You know, like, or, you know, like, uh, and it can be as simple as read the Psalms, you know, like, or, or it could be as demanding as shut yourself in your cell for 90 days. And don't, don't get out no matter what, you know, like, um, you know, like, but what they do is they offer these techniques and it reminded me, it seems on a, on an emotional level, it seems very similar to what you're describing with your teacher. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like that kind of, because the earliest fathers, they actually didn't have a list, a stepwise list of things. It was a relationship that the, that the less experienced would have with the elders who were more experienced. And they, and they didn't necessarily attach themselves to a single one. It was perfectly acceptable for uh, someone to go to more than one elder and ask the same question. That's, that's an interesting. Uh, one of the things my teacher says is like, even and this happens on Zoom or in face-to-face -face, is that 
his body will tell him what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So he'll like, if I'm, if my butt isn't tight, you know, at the, uh, uh, as the note progresses, um, he'll feel it. And he said, I don't know how I know this. I just know this. And, and that kind of speaks to your example with the desert father is, is a, in a living practice context in a living tradition, the knowledge isn't, isn't, uh, written down exactly it's lived and so a, a teacher will be present to the the student and be able to offer something that the student can do uh, to address their particular thing uh, that wouldn't necessarily be the same thing for someone else and so it's not it's not like one size fits all let's see this takes us back to the theme towards beginning of this conversation, the distinctions all come from people's attempt to make one size fit all. And uh, the division, sorry, the divisions come from yeah. uh, people's attempt to make one size fit all. And uh, one of you commented earlier about, oh, I think it was Jim, about how the material has always won out over the uh, spiritual and this exchange. Well, that also, in a certain sense, is somewhat understandable because uh, human beings are social animals. And so the cohesion of society is going to win out over the uh, desire to move beyond something that is defined by society. And this is a problem that Sufis recognized a very long time ago, why they regarded every group as only able to serve spiritual purposes for a period of time until inevitably social agendas took it over and then they either had to disrupt the group or disband the group uh, in a certain sense, start again, because those social agendas are very powerful. They're part of being human. And when you move to the vertical element, etc. Uh, <clears throat> putting those social agendas and that social cohesion, you're, you're lowering the priority, and that's not where most people want to go. Well, that's that's interesting because it brings up for me the uh, uh, some of the questions I've had about the Quaker tradition, which which Jim can tell us about, because. Um, uh, my understanding is that is that the founder George Fox was uh, I don't know divinely inspired. He didn't he didn't, as I understand it at least. And you can please correct me, Jim, if I'm mistaken here. He didn't he didn't follow a set of practices and then have his divine inspiration and then advocate or or admonish uh, people who are attracted to him. To, to do that, to do those practices. Um, and he, and he established as I understand it, but, but I don't know the, the specifics of what was happening during his life, but we get the result of social meetings where people sit in silence. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting wrinkle, or, or it seems to me that that's that's what's coming up for me in reference to what uh, Ken was just pointing to. So, so Jim, I, since you have a deep familiarity with that material, I'd appreciate your fleshing that out. 
That's interesting in the context of what Ken said that um, uh, in, in a sense, uh, historians of mysticism who do write about early Quakerism see it as an attempt to create um, a context for uh, a social mysticism. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And you, you, you can, they discuss you know, whether or not it was successful you know, like, and, and I'm not sure how, actually how you would measure that, but, um, but like Evelyn Underhill, um, who wrote a, a very influential book on mysticism, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, had a very low opinion of Quaker mysticism, you know, like, uh, precisely because it was based on that social, um, uh, social structure. Um, Others are are more tentative uh, about it. They say, you know, they say this, it's really unusual to, I mean, in in some ways you can look at early Quakerism as an attempt to mimic living under a monastic rule, but for lay people. Mm, Interesting. You know, like, uh, and... Uh, but I think George Fox and the other early Quakers thought of their um, meetings, well, they referred to them as gathered meetings. So a, a meeting that was gathered uh, had um, the people at the meeting had a shared experience of the inner light. That, that's what a gathered meeting meant. And what's interesting about that is that everyone knew when a meeting was gathered. Not all meetings had that dimension present, but everyone knew when that happened. Like, and um, so there's, I mean, one of the interesting things about early Quakerism, it was filled with uh, what the standard signs of mysticism, like healings. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, healings and levitation, which is almost never discussed <laughs> today among moderns, you know, like, the, uh, like uh, brother so-and-so or sister so levitated, you know, I mean, they don't use the word levitation, but they said rose in place, you know, like, um, you know, mm. like, and everyone in the meeting, you know, observed that, you know, like, and usually they were unaware that they had, that that had happened. You know, like, um, uh, and it's it's filled with that kind of thing. And I really think uh, it would be helpful to modern Quakers to re- uh, re-enter that literature. I mean, you can, how do I say this? The mo- When Quakers embraced modernity, what I think they were embarrassed by those passages. And, mm-hmm. and, and you just don't find them you know, in modern collections of early Quaker history, you don't find it. You know, what you find is um, a rationalization of, of the tradition, you know, like, and uh, so, I mean, am I, I guess I'm going kind of far afield because uh, I'm bringing in another issue about modernity and rationalization, but um, so I, I'll stop at this point. Well, I, I want, in, in reference to what I suggested, 
You also have the phenomenon in the Quaker movement of the people, the, the quietest versus the social activists, which right. refers again to this, those who, uh, the, the social tendencies, you know, we have to be active in society. Uh, and, and how how those actually come to dominate after a while, right? Well, we like, have that in Buddhism today now. Well, that's true. Yeah, yes, exactly. And uh, the the way it's being presented in Buddhism, there, there's actually a, a quite a deep disregard for tradition, saying no, they were all wrong, and we're right now. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm reminded of, of descriptions of the Christian ritual that became communion and the mass uh, mm-hmm. later. Um, uh, and, and some people have, have suggested that it was a combination of the poorest of the poor coming together to share physical food, but that also was a sharing of of the kind of uh, the kind of mystical food that that Jim is was referring to when he when he pointed to some of these meetings were gathered or not and and I, I think it's I, I think it's the same basic phenomenon and it is really interesting when when I hadn't I hadn't I, I'm really glad to have heard you talk about this. Uh, this sense of a meeting being gathered, Jim, because I, I realized that there have been times in my own, you know, Sangha, whether you use that Buddhist term or, or not, is incredibly important for practice. Um, not that solitary pra- practitioners uh, are to be excluded, but they're almost always uh, doing things in reference to Mm-hmm. other human beings one way or another and 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 uh, that that social connection is important even for solitary practitioners so i'm so i'm 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 intrigued by this by this aspect of the social and i of course take ken's point and agree with ken's point that that it's easy for the social to lose the the gist of what you were calling the 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 sense of of a gather of a gathering together in a meeting and i don't know if there's much more to say about that but i'm um you know, not where, where I was expecting this conversation to go, really. Yeah, I, I just want to have a, a, one observation about hermits and recluses, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've come to view um, uh, hermits as um, individuals who cultivate a particular kind of relationship with society. Ah, I like that. And and usually today, hermits are viewed as cutting off their relationship to society. But but when I actually read about hermits, they aren't cut off from society. You know, even the um, who are the people who were sealed up? Um, anchorites. Even anchorites had a relationship with society, which is often quite interesting. You know, like um, mm-hmm. so. 
the hermits structure their life in such a way that, um, that you know, that they, they want certain things in their life. Well, for example, someone, uh, you know, returning to the metaphors of being a musician, if someone wants to be a musician, they have to structure their life in such a way that they regularly practice. Right? And so you can view their, their practice period as a kind of, I mean, people don't view it this way, but you could view it as withdrawing from society. You know, like I'm going to withdraw for this hour, one hour every day, I'm going to practice my guitar or my piano. And a hermit does something similar. You know, like for certain periods of time, I'm, I'm going to be, I don't know, go meditating, chanting the Psalms, you know, like uh, praying, uh, contemplating, whatever it is, because that's very important to me. I think the reason there's a difference today, you know, the people view hermits as cutting themselves off from society, whereas they view a musician who wants to practice as not doing that, is because uh, modernity doesn't view what hermits um, are relating to as real. Mm -hmm. They don't value it. They don't value it. They value musicianship. So, oh yeah, yeah, you need to practice. So we'll, you know, so we won't bother you. So that we, so that we can be entertained. Right. Well, but, but, um, well, let me add, add something else here. So there's, um, to, to get back to your metaphors, Jim, there's, uh, string quartets. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the music of string quartets and, uh, of course, there's the element of competence of the individual mu musicians and even the competence of paying sufficient attention to one's fellows in the string quartet um, such that the music blends in a particular way. But uh, what I want to suggest is that sometimes there's an additional element that comes from the blending aspect. And, and, and I can think of moments at, at performances in performances when I guess it felt as if the audience and the musicians were gathered in the way that you were pointing to in the, in the um, Quaker tradition earlier. And I think, I think that's something that, um, that that has a resonance with spiritual practice. That that um, I'm not saying that music is spiritual practice, but I'm saying that the attention to the creation of something greater than the sum of the parts is is a really interesting aspect of practice that I hadn't I haven't thought about much. That surely comes about. Let's take the string quartet because it's a little simpler than uh, when each member of the string quartet gives themselves completely to the music. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, to, so their sense of, of, of being an independent player drops away. Hmm. Got it. So I wanted to 
relate that back to Jim's example of the hermit that the way you configure it though that there is a relationship with society means that there's a co-participation and the presence and the actions of the hermit the dedication that they demonstrate influences the people who might be bringing food or the people who are aware of this this person in that it's a reminder of of something outside of the ordinary social structure yeah i i think that that's that's right and you can you can pick it up in uh some particularly in the medieval period where uh, anchorites and hermits uh, um, society valued them and supported their existence you know by, by bringing them food and, um, and th that kind of thing what's what's in my view is that um, uh, and that and it does get mystical is that I I think hermits have a permeating influence that's, that's what that's what I'm getting at I mean that's why I'm, I'm drawing the analogy with what Ken was saying about the string quartet. It's different, but that permeation, that permeating, that feeling sense, that energy, I think is, is real. It's, as you say, modernity tends to discount it, but when it's present, some people can partake of that. And then something is created that is a greater than the sum of its parts. Once again, absolutely. Yeah. We're on the same page there. And we could bring this back to Pelagius and the... Uh... Well, go right ahead. <laughs> Pelagius would be a representative of the... Um, uh, of the hermit, you know, like the ascetic and the hermit and, and Augustine. You know, Augustine lived communally. Like, uh, like, what was the city in Africa where he... Um, Hippo, uh, Hippo, Hippo right. Augustine of Hippo, that's right. So, he, you know, he he lived with his priests. They ate in common. Uh, you know, they ate their meals in common. And they uh, uh, that that was very, very important to Augustine. You know, like, and so when I, you know, when I visit the conflict between Pelagius and um, and Augustine, it's it's like these are these are two personality archetypes, you know, like uh, battling it out for um, space, or I guess you could say battling in Augustine's case, battling it out for domination, you know, like of um, uh, it, but in in a way, I guess I think Ken touched on this a little bit. In a way, I think we are talking about personalities, you know, like that. But also personal experience. And all, oh, right, that's that's how you uh, frame it. So you can think of Pelagius, the his asceticism and his belief in um, uh, that asceticism, like I said, either opens you to grace or it is accomplished through grace or both, you know, like. That was his experience, you know, like, and no, no one doubted incidentally Pelagius, the sincerity of Pelagius. You know, like, like you mentioned that 
uh, Augustine actually admired his dedication to asceticism. Mm -hmm. So, so that that no one thought that he was insincere, just being a showman, you know, like or something something like that. But Augustine's experience was uh, the sangha. Yeah, but I, 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 I'm going to jump in here and, and just say I, I think Augustine may have appreciated the Sangha, but I think he also appreciated power. Yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> or, or having his hands on the levers of power, maybe, maybe another way to put it. And that tainted, in my view, uh-huh. or, or colored at least his uh, communitarian. So this is why the material um, always comes out on top. Hmm. Because power. That, that I'm not, because of power, is that what you're saying? No, I don't think power is the only thing, but because they appeal or they, they will use methods that the ascetic has in mind, him or herself. And the ascetic can't use those methods because to do so would be to violate the practice of asceticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or or it's like privileging the uh, uh, the social domain. Which, That's another way of putting it. Yes. I mean, I think about uh, like the discussions we've had about the evolution of the Quaker tradition from a quietist oriented tradition to a social activist oriented tradition, and. And you see, as you were saying with Buddhism, it's it's a, as though the contemplative techniques, you know, well, that's all well and good, but uh, I don't need to just feel good. I have to do something about the world. And and there's a privileging of the social structure over the uh, uh, the reality of the unseen. So after the I finished. Came back to Canada from the three-year retreats that I've done in France. I went to see uh, a Lama that I knew in Toronto, who was a bit of a character, but quite silent. As I was doing my bows, he said, "Okay, Ken, you've been in retreat for seven years. Which is better, Christianity or Buddhism?" <laughs> well, I know knew this teacher well enough to know that. You don't answer these questions because he'll tie you up in knots whichever way you go. So I sat down and said, what do you think, Christianity or Buddhism? He said, Christianity. I said, why is that? Christians do what Buddhists think. (laughs) Then we had a long discussion uh, about that. Uh, And we... And and he, he was basically, you know, just seeing where I was and having a lot of fun with me. And it was fun. But the, uh, it really does come down to what, uh, I mean, you use the term, what do you privilege in your life? <clears throat> what, is, what is your life about? And for someone like uh, Pelagius and like the Desert Fathers uh, and others, their uh, their life, their, the central feature of their life, was uh, a communion of some sort with the divine or with God or what have you. That 
that was what was most important. And for people who are coming in, you know, driving the peasant fathers out into the desert, what was important in their life was their status in society. And these, you, because you're dealing with an organization, I mean, I, I had a friend who's a Catholic priest, and when he was in uh, training to be a Catholic priest, there were a group of 16 novices. And after, uh, it was a four-year training, and after the third year, there were four left. And they all met together and said, how be it we all take a vow that from now on we're nice to each other. <laughs> it just shows, you know, this human element comes in. So I'm going to tease Jim a little bit here. He said, well, there's no wonder that uh, Augustine favored original sin. He lived in a community. <laughs> <laughs> There's well, that, that. Which, which then leads me to ask the question: To have in a in a in a ritual uh, like a Quaker meeting, or in a Christian mass, or <clears throat> or in whatever, uh, or the Kumbh Mela, whatever whatever ritual it happens to be, if if with 11 million people might be difficult here, <clears throat> excuse me, to have uh, this aspect of gathering that's, that Jim was mentioning earlier is a necessary ingredient, at least one person who has already opened the door to the mystical in their, in their own lives. Or can it, I, I, I suspect there's not one answer here, but, but, uh, or maybe such a a feature of a social group or gathering uh, is um, is enhanced by the presence of at least one such person. And if you have a if you have a gathering without that person, the likelihood of of um, of this elevated dimension is far less likely to occur. That's my question. Yeah. Oh, that's such a straightforward question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it depends. Uh, I mean, It's possible for a group of people uh, to hold a field of energy, or a field of attention. And in holding that field of attention, all of them may experience something deeper than they could by themselves because there's a communal effort. And I think something along those lines, the term gathering, or mm -hmm. a meeting might refer. This, of course, can be greatly facilitated if one or more of the people in the group has a solid relationship with that and has enough ability that they can actually create a field in which other people can join. But is it absolutely necessary that there be uh, someone who has that 
ability for that to happen. I don't think so. I think it can happen with people coming together. And you see this actually when a family gathers after someone has died. Mm. They they will just meet. And because of the emotional shock, they will let themselves go and something quite extraordinary and wonderful can arise without anybody really intending to do so. That they share something and in that sharing there is that they have the ability and willingness to actually let go of themselves in a certain sense and so something else can arise. And those are my thoughts on it. I think that um, makes sense. I mean, in that uh, in that case, there's a shock of some sort that uh, aligns and elevates the group. I mean, we've seen that collectively. I, I, I distinctly remember the the feeling of uh, after nine eleven in America, there was a period where there was a collective shock. It didn't last very long. I go back to Kennedy's assassination. Yeah. And so there are these moments that I think where these things, these <clears throat> events are shocking and they cause a pause. Uh, it, it doesn't last, in the political sphere, it doesn't last very long, in, in my observation. But um, and it, it can also be created by need. The need is strong enough. It can also what would be an example of, of that? Uh, I'm just curious what's your, in your mind where a group is faced with survival and so they come together to figure out how to survive and mm. drop themselves in the process. Ah, I see. Yeah. Okay. So if there's a strong enough need or there's a big enough shock or something like that. Yeah. So so uh, there's a couple things that uh, themes that I see can tie some things together and maybe uh, also shine uh, uh, or turn a lens on our, our current situation. And that's, we've used the term modernity and um, the the consequences of modernity, and with relationship to the access to or the uh, availability of access to the transcendent. And so, I'm interested in how you both uh, come down on what how you would characterize the nature of modernity with respect to these questions that we've been talking about. You want to go, Jim? Okay. Um, I see the distinguishing uh, characteristic of modernity is um, uh, the loss of the transcendental dimension, you know, like this. And the, uh, the way that happens is that any, exp any expression of the transcendental or a... Um, a yearning for the transcendental is reconfigured by modernity in several ways. It could be can re reconfigured psychologically as a neurosis, you know, like, or as a delusion, you know, like, um, or as uh, psychologically as a um, what as some kind of complex to handle other difficulties, you know, like, uh, and. It can be <clears throat> reinterpreted uh, economically, 
So uh, Marxism reinterpreted economically it's the, as the opiate of the opiate of the masses, you know, like, mm-hmm. so uh, as a way of uh, the masses handling their difficult economic situation. So it's actually reinterpreting it in terms of power. And it, reint- and it could be uh, reinterpreted in terms of power. I don't act from this perspective on this particular issue. I actually don't see a difference between modernity and post-modernity. I know that there are there are what I would call um, uh, methodological differences between modernity and post-modernity. And the biggest one is that post-modernity tends not to believe the truth exists at all, whereas the uh, previous period of modernity. Um, would say that religion, that the transcendental is untrue, you know, like, whereas post-modernity would say it's just a story. You know, right. Like, um, so, and that it's, a, it's a, lately I've been think, thinking about it as this could be an opportunity for, um, how do I put it? Uh, representing it could be an opportunity to represent the nature of the transcendental so I got a hint of this I'm not very clear about this so I'm talking out loud but um, um, I was reading a very short work about um, Japanese spirituality and uh, by an American um, trying to remember his name but it's not coming up anyway he said that he thought that Japanese spirituality was horizontally transcendental (laughs) and uh, and in our conversation I mean Ken you know frequently talks about the vertical dimension but maybe what we've lost is the horizontal dimension you know like because modernity is hyper individualistic so there's kind of a contraction, you know, like into individual concerns, you know, that that takes place. And I'm just, uh, like I said, I'm thinking out loud. But for quite a few years, I'd been depressed about about all the obstacles that are placed uh, to accessing. Um, modernity, you know, like I said, the psychological obstacles, the political obstacles, the economic obstacles, and I'm talking about theoretical obstacles. uh, And there are material obstacles as well. uh, And just recently, I've been thinking, well, maybe this is part of a cycle, you know, like where the nature of the transcendental has to be renewed. It has to be reconfigured and and re- um, re-understood in order to find a place in a new configuration. So does that make sense? Or yeah, kind of, very much so. Um, I think our current political chaos, I don't think that's too strong a word. I'm Chaos. 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 Got it. Uh, Can be seen as uh, 
people in a modern society struggling to find uh, some way to express their religious aspect. Hmm. And both on the right and the left. It's distorted, it's confused, it's self-defeating at this point, but I, 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 I tend to see it as that, that kind of struggle. Uh, and, uh, and, and going, thinking, uh, piggybacking on what Jim just said, uh, because of the, the advent of modernism, uh, largely wiped out the practice of the actual practice of religion in large segments of uh, Western society, at least, then uh, people are casting about, they literally don't know what to do. So they're trying all kinds of things. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of them aren't working uh, and are creating uh, quite serious problems. Uh, but I think that is, uh, part of me feels that we're not going to get out of this political morass until the uh, subject of religion is uh, and uh, spiritual uh, learning or whatever is addressed in a very substantial way. But if you look at the right method, they're both trying to bring religion into the world in a way that it hasn't been in the past. Well, well, uh, in in this precise moment, I, I mean, I've, I've been reading that uh, American evangelicals are undergoing uh, self-examination at this point because of uh, having hitched themselves for decades now to the political. And an awful lot of them are, are examining that choice and, um, and turning in, in another direction. And I think that may be part of what you're, you're yeah. referring to. That is part of what I'm referring to. Uh, um, yeah, yeah I, and I, I guess I would like to add, we're, we're getting close to the end here, so, uh, uh, but uh, I'll add that, you know, one of, the th one of the themes we've talked about is this descent from sort of allegorical, feel, you know, allegorical relationship to the transcendental to a literal mindedness. And I tend to think of modernity as this, this the advent or the the amp, amping up of literalness or literal mindedness. So, for instance, scientific thinking is very literal minded, and then it then it tries to expand into you know whatever um, uh, and and discount everything that's not literal minded and the religious crisis tends to be a crisis where allegory has sunk into literalness and what allegory feeds is an awakening of the heart and literal and literalism does not do that in the same way. So when I think about the, the chaos today, uh, I agree a hundred percent that it's this, uh, uh, religious crisis, but it's a religious crisis born of literalism, such that what's not what's not awakened in people is empathy. And if if empathy were more to the fore, we wouldn't have these uh, uh, fractures. I'd, I'd go a step further. Uh, I see 
the way that you're using empathy as the result of feeling part of something that is infinitely greater than you because then you everybody else is part of it yeah yes uh, and, and so out of that comes a sense of commonality and i think i mean part of the problem with the reformation is that it forced societies in europe to base their organization on reason uh, because there was no ag agreement in the religious sphere and that worked very well for two or three hundred years or not longer i suppose but it's uh it's run its course and it traces back to jim's idea well i've sometimes wondered if if the last 500 years of human history have not been about the dismantling of hierarchical structures that arose 10,000 years ago and um, and and our uh, the technological means of 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 I wanted to say communion well as if communion um, are not an op are not the first fragmented expressions of of a reemergence of something that is that we know from hunter-gatherer societies does not have to express itself in hierarchy. You don't need the priest or the warrior, um, but you can uh, be empowered to access in in the terms we're look we're discussing here to access the door or doors to the. Um, to the mystical dim dimensions, and um, and it was hard for people to do that for the for ninety five percent of the population when they were slaving away, uh, feeding the uh, the one percent as we would say nowadays, and and I think that uh, the the economic and political transformations that have occurred. Are these chaotic ways that that this that this change has been occurring? That's my hope. Not saying that I'm uh, going to argue. So that's I, the way ironically, it's been. the robot revolution is going to uh, it's going to free us to uh, <laughs> uh, the transcendent. <laughs> there we go. All right, I know our time is. More. <laughs> I, uh, that one is a subject for a whole other conversation. <laughs> All right. I agree. Well, well, there you go. Isn't that a good way it to end? Problems there. <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> you, Fair enough. That's why I, I put it forward as tentative. I guess the host gets the last word. <laughs> but, uh, 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 yeah, we are, we are at the end of our time here, but, uh, 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 thank you all for a very interesting exploration of these questions. And so, a lot of new stuff has come up for me, so thank you for that. Well, always enjoyable. I find our conversations very rich and rewarding, and I always learn a lot from them. Thank you. All right. Till next time. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodman. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with two of our favorite guests, Ken McLeod and Jim Wilson. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org and the author of several books, including Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, and his most recent, A Trackless Path. 
Jim is a poet and writer. He has published several books on spiritual matters, including On Trusting the Heart, a commentary on a famous poem by the Third Zen Patriarch, and an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. It could be those ways.